Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. I'm Rebecca Rothstein, and along with my co-host, Leanne Daly, we'd like to welcome you to Say It Forward. Each week, we'll be doing one of my favorite things to do, and that's interviewing interesting people with out-of-the-ordinary life stories. They're all people who took a different path in life. Some never imagined the heights they would achieve, and others, well, they turned their childhood dreams into reality. So let's begin. Robert Radcliffe's career includes more than $1 billion worth of home sales in the highly regarded upscale areas of Los Angeles, including Brentwood, Pacific Palisades, Santa Monica, and Malibu. Ranked in the top 1% worldwide, Rob has been leading the Radcliffe Group, his highly effective and successful supporting team that has been recognized yearly by the Wall Street Journal as one of the top 250 sales teams in the U.S., But it wasn't always like that. After overcoming a life of strife that no one should have to endure, he made his way into real estate and became an author of two books, 12 Simple Steps to Loving Life and the autobiographical 180 Degrees, which is his inspiring story of a once homeless kid addicted to drugs who turned sober and became a self-made millionaire by the age of 30. This is one incredible life story turnaround. So, let's find out how the heck he did it as we rewind to the beginning and say it forward with Robert Radcliffe. So, tell us where you're from. Where were you born? Uh, Orange County, down you're in Irvine. You're a California guy. Yeah, down in an area wow. called Turtle Rock, which um, at that time you're able to actually see the rock that looked like a turtle. But I went down there a couple of years ago and I don't even know where that rock is now because it's so you know developed all around the, the neighborhood. But, yeah. Was it in the ocean? Uh, no, it's off the coast, down kind of in the Newport Beach area, close by. But down so how long did you live in Orange County? Till I was about eight years old, roughly eight. And then it was kind of a dramatic exit, I guess, in a way. I mean, I, well, I that's guess kind a dangling of, statement. Yeah. yeah. You want to tell us about I that? I guess <laughs> kind of like launching into some of the drama, yeah. um, which I didn't know that we'd go there so quick. <laughs> we, you know, it's funny. We frequently do because our intention. Just go straight for the jugular. Yeah. Well, no, it's actually the opposite. It's like go straight for the deeper understanding because yeah. so much of that is of such service to others. Yeah. We'll talk more about that yeah. later as far as being of service to others, yeah. which. You know, I hope this interview in some way is of service to yeah. others. So let's go back to the drama. Yeah. Uh, so child services were called uh, when I was somewhere around seven or eight. My dad had a bad habit of abusing my brother and I, physically abusing us. And um, it was one particular incident that he knocked me unconscious. You know, he picked me up by my neck and threw me into a chair. And my grandmother happened to be sitting in the chair. And so the you know, the sturdiness of her weight sitting in it and me going face first into it knocked me out. And then when I came to, you know, there was commotion and drama and my dad left that day. I didn't see him till I was 15. So about seven or eight years later, he resurfaced. But, you know, I don't know all the details, but he left my mom somewhat financially destitute. And so we left there and moved to an apartment in, in Brentwood on Barrington. Mm-hmm. I was about nine or ten. Wow. That is – Do you have a clear recollection of that happening? I do. Yeah, I remember – you know how in life there are just some like moments that are just always remain vivid in your memory and yeah, I acutely remember. Was your grandmother 
his mother or your uh, my mom's, mom's mom? My mom's mom. My, your mom's mom. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's a terrible must have, story. That yeah. must have created a real feeling of, I mean, I'm assuming vulnerability. Yes, but there was also, I remember because my brother and I were so scared of my dad. So there was a relief when that happened as well, when he left. It was like, you know, the guy that was hitting us and, you know, with a belt or whatever is not here. Mm-hmm. So there was a big exhale as well, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know. So I would have rather traded in not having that fear for yeah. for leaving, you know, the home into yeah. in a small little apartment. To us, that was like, okay, good. We can breathe and exhale and feel but safe. A, but a tough perspective for a seven or eight-year-old kid to have to process. Now that I have children, I'm way more aware of that. Yeah. At the time, that was just my existence. Mm-hmm. You know, you didn't really – and I think for everyone, you don't really process what you now know as an adult looking back and especially once having children. And you're like, wow, like I have a, one of my three sons is seven years old. You know, another one's 10. I'm thinking, wow, what I was put through then, I can't imagine my boys being put through that. Mm-hmm. You know, like mm-hmm. my heart like just aches for me as a little kid back then. Yeah. Like, wow, I can't believe that happened. Yeah. Were you older or younger than your brother? A year and nine months older. Older. Mm-hmm. Did he also have the same experience with your father? Not as much. So um, well, actually, I take that back. I take that back. He did, but not that incident, obviously, where I was knocked unconscious. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he did. He did have the same sort of abuse to him. Wow. Yeah. So in the years following, it, let's say the eight years that followed until you were 15 years old, what was life like? It was great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was awesome. We lived in the apartments directly across from Barrington Park, mm-hmm. a recreation park. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at the time we lived in a two bedroom apartment and it was my brother, my mom and I and another single mom with her son, Josh. It was Josh and Judy. So we lived in a small apartment, in two bedrooms. They shared a bed, my mom and, mm-hmm. and Judy, our bedroom. And mm-hmm. then us three boys shared the other room. But it was like, you know, utopia. We yeah. had a big park across the street and you played I, basketball and football and baseball all day long after school. <laughs> exactly. I actually know a woman who's starting a business that's like Airbnb, but it's for single mothers and single parents to, to join up in the way that your families did. That's awesome. Yeah. And to create a matching marketplace for that to happen. That's awesome. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. What a great way to be surrounded by two moms for better or for worse. <laughs> yeah. You know, again, at that, yeah, at that time I was really, really happy. Yeah. You know, we, Josh was similar to our age and very much into all sports. So to be able to play football and baseball and yeah. basketball and shoot caroms and all that kind of stuff after school, it was really fun. Yeah. And it was a life of the neighborhood of the kids, like probably calling totally. down, we're going outside <clears throat> to play. It's like a, that area too is a little bit more like a city area in a way mm-hmm. because you have apartment buildings. Buildings and parks, mm-hmm. and you kids can Tons of kids, kids can free range. And it was a different time too. You know that that many years ago, where you know we just ran around all day yeah. after school. And yeah. so now today, do you know your dad? He passed away. I lived with him when he when I was fifteen when he resurfaced. And at that time, I was fifteen. I was looking for my freedom, my independence, and my dad came back into the picture and tried to win us over. My brother and I showering us with gifts and like, you know, here's the credit card, go buy some albums down at the music store. It just, so I thought, wow, I'm going to ride this train. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You know, this is like, this is a good setup here. Had he curbed some of his previous behaviors? Was his behavior different at 15? It was different. Yeah, it was different because, I mean, we were a little older. Yeah. You know, I always wondered if my dad, 
had a bout with alcoholism. He was a heavy drinker. I think he was an alcoholic. I don't know, you know, and I'm in recovery now and yeah. I still don't even know. I look back at my dad's life and go, hmm, I think he was a drunk. Yeah. <laughs> but he was, I guess, a high managing drunk. Sure. There, there's a lot of those out there in the world doing incredible for sure. things. <laughs> yeah, for How sure. How long ago did he pass away? How old were you? Well, it was just before my oldest son was born. So he passed away 21 years ago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I was 30. And he, so he called me out of the blue because, again, I had lived with him for two years from 15 till about 17 and then had a falling out. And that was much because my own doing at yeah. that time in my life. Well, you were 17. Yeah, I was 17. I was just a you know, derelict troublemaker and making stupid decisions. Then he resurfaced for like one day I saw him and then I thought I was going to like rekindle my relationship with him and I was in my young 20s mm-hmm. and then he vanished again. And then he called me when I was like 29 out of the blue just saying, hey, my, my doctors have told me I should maybe make some phone calls because I'm dying of cancer. So my first reaction was like, wow, this is what it takes for you to make a phone call to your son. But I immediately you know, paused and kind of took back that knee-jerk reaction of disappointment with compassion and sadness of realizing, wow, this is heavy. You yeah. know, my dad's dying. Yeah. So – it gave us some time to mend. I had an opportunity to make amends to him when I was, you know, that stupid teenage kid right. getting involved in my own bout with drugs and alcohol. Yeah. As a teenager? As a teenager, yeah. So when did that begin? You're 15. You go over with your dad. You have much more liberty, I'm assuming, with your father than you had with your mom. Yeah. Did that precipitate some of the stuff that happened? Oh, yeah, unquestionably. Can it was you- like for some reason it was like a floodgate had opened up for me. You know, it's I, I tell my boys and others, there are some things that we either, you know, watch, experience, people in our lives, or even a movie. And at that time, Fast Times at Ridgemont High came out. <laughs> yeah. And, that was my kid's favorite movie. <laughs> and Spicoli influenced me, you know. Interesting. I just remember the watching the movie. And I look back on it now. At the time, I didn't think so. But I look back on it now. I'm like, wow. God, that movie really influenced me watching the attention Spicoli got as the stoner. Right. You know, and how everyone, he was like the favorite character of the movie. Yeah. You know, and. Beloved. Yeah. He was the beloved stoner, derelict. And that actually subconsciously affected me. And so I had just entered into a new high school, starting new high school. Where were you? Cupertino High School. Okay. You know, as I was telling. My two younger boys, actually just this last week, because one of them is kind of the class clown. And I talked to him about how sometimes getting attention, negative attention, is not a good thing, you know, trying to explain. And how I, as a kid, love that attention as well. I was a new kid in high school. I was just kind of embarking on the new wave punk rock scene. You know, I had the earring at 15 and nobody had an earring, you know. I had the faux hawk. Cupertino's a little square at that point. At that time. Everything pre-MTV was square outside of L.A. (laughs) MTV changed everything. best. (laughs) It's so true. It is. I remember like I stood out, you know, with whatever I was doing and then MTV came around and everyone kind of stood out with, you know, videos. Anyhow, going back to high school, Cupertino, I got a lot of attention. Um, Not that I was seeking it, but I was the new kid in town. You know, I had the faux white mohawk. I had the earring. (laughs) I saw, you know, fast time. So I was, you know, getting stoned at the time. And for some reason, I didn't understand that there's actually a filter that, 
you know, you can be someone out there that smokes pot and drinks some beer and control it. For me, some reason was like, well, now I party in my head. You know, I thought, okay, now I'm a partier. So that kind of means everything. Mm-hmm. There was no like taming anything. Mm-hmm. And so you were all in. I was all in. I don't know what mm-hmm. that was about, but mm-hmm. yeah, I was all in fast. What did your mom say? Well, my mom wasn't living with – I wasn't living with my mom at the time. I was but living you, with my but dad. You, you didn't see her? She wasn't around? No. She got really offended, really upset that I was going to live with my dad. dad? Yeah. It, she took it really hard and got really angry with me. So is I she did, alive? She is. She is? Are you guys good? We're good, although not close. Mm-hmm. I love my mom, but there's – Definitely a barrier there that we've never really overcome, and you know, I speak with her on yeah. holidays mm-hmm. and Mother's not, Days not and yet. birthdays, and right? Not yet. Yeah, right. Not yet. Yeah. No, my <laughs> observations of you are though is that you seem to be very competent and confident, and you have a successful life, and you have a good marriage, and you have. I'm assuming that your children and you and your wife get along. Everybody's good. Yes. So you didn't repeat the pattern of behavior that you were. I raising. definitely did not repeat the pattern of abuse to my kids unquestionably. I mean, there was one time I, there's two times in my life I spanked with my hand one of my three boys, you know, when he was acting up. And I remember pausing when that happened inside and going, whoa, wake up, Rob. Like, don't let that cross a line ever, you know, being Mm -hmm. really sensitive to that moment. Mm -hmm. I have four boys, so I totally understand the urge to want to do that on occasion because they are so annoying Mm -hmm. and little when they're young and they don't listen. I took one of my sons one time. He was he hid in those rounds at the suit at the department store. You know, they have those circular fixtures that had clothes all the way around them. Mm -hmm. And he just I couldn't find him. There were four, I had my four boys with me. I couldn't find yeah. him. I was terrified. Right. I literally was like, <gasps> you know, like yeah. that, and I couldn't find him. And I finally found him. He was hiding in one of the things, and I grabbed him by his arm and I pulled him out of the department store. And I was carrying, you know, walking towards the car. I was yelling at him, "How could you do this?" And then I stopped myself and I went, "This is not the way to handle this." Right. And I remember clearly having the conversation with myself, going. I need to stop this right now because this is not the way to handle this. I'm manifesting my fear. I was terrified on him. Mm-hmm. And I so think that's I told often, him that. I think that's often the case even even when a kid's just acting up. Because they're ours, we, we sort of catastrophize and go into the future with what this means, you know, mm-hmm. and we want to stop it. And it's it's tough, but it's it's great. I mean, the story yeah, that you're telling. Yeah, you pulled yourself back. I t- I you pull yourself <laughs> back. I mean, it's 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 uh, – it's really interesting being a parent. Yeah. I, I stepped away. Actually, I got emotional. I cried. Yeah. You know, after I yeah. gave him a spank and I was like, you know, I walked away afterwards and I just got emotional going. And just obviously I was flooded with feelings of remembering my dad, yes. you know, and, and just acknowledging I'm never going to repeat that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I my, my child walked off in the woods with another kid and disappeared for four hours. Oh, my God. When he was five. And the kid was like nine. It was a girl. And I spanked him. I Not like hard, but I popped him on the butt and right. just said, don't ever do that again. And, I, you know, at five, he probably didn't have the ability to discern. But yeah. he remembers it. And um, he really resented it. It depends <clears throat> on the kid whether or not they're going to anchor in what happened. But it's, um, you know, being a parent is just such a emotionally rife Yes, experience. It it's yeah. like permanent vulnerability, I think. Yeah. And once you once these little babies come into your life, you know, you do anything to protect them. Yep. And to guide them. 
Yeah. You know. Yeah. And you didn't have that in your life. You know, it sounds to me like you were pretty at a young age. You know, you had the your whole life was changed and shaken up, which is a trauma. And you and you sound like you remember the trauma. A lot of people block out those traumas and don't remember them, but you clearly remember the trauma and what what the subsequent actions after that trauma. Yes, I do for sure. Now go back to Cupertino. Mm-hmm. You're channeling your inner Spicoli. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's funny. Yes, I was. <laughs> and and uh, you're all in on partying. You've decided that this is a way to be. Yes, and it's a combination of that and I, you know. In the two books that I wrote, which are recovery-based books as far as the themes, you know, I, I talk about whether or not I was born an addict with the disease of alcoholism or I became you know, an addict. When was there that invisible line that I crossed, which is conversations I've had with my oldest son? Sure. Hey, How old no, is he? He's 21. Okay. Nobody on Skid Row or nobody homeless ever thought the first time they started partying that they would end up homeless or on Skid Row. You know, there's – an invisible line that's crossed that you just like, oh my God, I went from, you know, as I write about in one of the books is I'd like to see if there's drugs and alcohol around to, I hope there's drugs and alcohol around to, I'm going to make sure (laughs) there's drugs and alcohol Mm -hmm. around me at all times, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know? So there's that invisible line that's crossed where for me, I crossed it quick. Yeah. Like 15. What are the trade-offs that you have to make as a human being to, to ensure Oh, that's where drugs and alcohol, it's like the addiction part of it, you know, because there's definitely, you know, a majority of people that could recreationally use them and it's all good. And my hat's off to you. I kind of wish I can be that guy, but I realize I can't. That's not me. That's not in my cards. Sadly, you know, it's just, it's a disgusting world, like the underbelly of addiction. Mm -hmm. It's gross. Just you exchange all your values. Your integrity of who you are, of what's imp- what's like, you know, you're doing things at times wrong, mm-hmm. and there was always a core like part of value of me that I never did cross that line in some areas, you know. But I watched it in others, you know, people that I knew pre addiction, and then watched the things that they did to you know keep themselves high, and it's sad. Mm-hmm. What it's was really your addiction sad. of choice? God, everything. Yeah. So how did you acquire? When you say everything, I'm assuming this means cocaine, marijuana, alcohol. I don't, I don't yeah. know what the whole. I was of. shooting dope by fi- at 15. So where did you get money to do this? My dad. Your father knowing. helped you to get no, money. No, you stole money from yeah. your dad. I take money from my dad. You know, and then you know a lot of this. I'm ashamed to have this part of my story, but it is part of my story. Right. So it's one of those things like we talked about at the beginning of this segment. Here is. Hopefully something being said can be of service sure. to others, you know. Yeah. And I look back on especially the man that I am today and I'm ashamed of a lot of stuff that I did, you know, but it's who I was at the time. Yeah. You know, I got caught up in the whole drug scene and I dealt high school friends and quickly realized that, hey, if I'm the middleman here, you know, I'm gonna be able to, as I refer to it, keep headgear on for right. myself. Keep yeah. Your- so what Turned it around. Yeah. And well, first of all, how long did that last? And then what turned From 15 it to like 23. So you had a full 50% of your life at that time. At that smoking. time, yeah. Yeah. I. Um, You've been sober since you're 23? Yeah, 28 years sober. Wow. 
March 11 was 28 years. That's so impressive. Congratulations. Thank really. you. It's I mean, really now it's such a, it's such a way of life. Right. It's not a struggle at all to stay sober. You know, it just it is like I was speaking with my wife about it. Whom drinks? Mm-hmm. She drinks, and we have a full bar in our house. Mm-hmm. Doesn't even phase me. Mm-hmm. You know, and she's like, if you could, she asked me this question recently. It was not an odd question, but out of the blue, hasn't been asked before. Rob, if you could drink, would you? Or do you see yourself maybe having a drink when you're 80 years old? Like what could fall apart after, you know, after 80, you know, like don't worry about it then. And I'm like, you know what? No, I love clarity. Yeah. You know, I love, I love sobriety. I love the life that I live, which Mm -hmm. I think is a very healthy life. I can't even imagine yeah. What that would feel you like. You ramped up fairly quickly. I mean, you became, is is this normal? I, don't, I apologize because I'm not that familiar with uh, the path to addiction. Um, so I hope I hope this isn't a silly question, but how long does it take to ramp up from being? Everyone's different. You know, again, as we talked about earlier, there's a high bottom drunk. You know, there's the skid row, the homeless, which I was, you know, homeless for a while. Um, then there's the high bottom drunk, like my father, who ran a law firm, Yeah. you know, but he was heavy drunk. Yeah. I mean, a heavy drinker slash maybe a drunk. I don't know. I, I have a relative who was on very successful professional at a very high level in a similar realm uh, Mm -hmm. as your dad, uh, who was on the board of uh, several large public uh, organizations Mm -hmm. and owned like four other businesses and was drinking white wine in the car, Mm -hmm. you know, and got out, got through it at a much more advanced age. Yeah. I explained to my oldest son who, you know, he's actually the president of his fraternity. So he's living the fraternity life at USC. And I explained to him, I said, you know, Skylar, you know, do realize this, that addiction does not discriminate. And then while you're on the outside, I know everything is looking great for you and I'm so excited. You do carry my gene. Be very aware. There's, you know, don't cross that invisible line and you don't yeah. know when that happens. You know, just be conscious of the partying that happens in fraternities. You yeah. know, just be aware of what's going on. Can we go back to the question, how did it end? What what, yeah, what, what, what was happened that? inside of you? Well, it was, it was kind of a, a combination. It was about a six-month time frame, maybe less. And it's all That part is kind of a blur. <laughs> There's like Kodak moments, I remember, you know, as I pieced it together to write the first book that I wrote, which is an autobiography. The first event that happened was I was actually abducted, is I guess the right term. You know, I was taken captive over a cocaine deal that clearly didn't go well. And you know, I had a, a gun shoved in my mouth. I was being pistol slapped. I was tied up. I was thrown in the back of a car. I was told I was going to die. You know, that I was, you know, quote, you know, you're going to get a chip up your, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. butt tonight. And at that time, this is pre-internet too, which was like, I remember this so clearly. It was pre-internet, pre like able to do research on people quickly. They rambled out my parents' address and said, when we're done with you, you know, we're going to 1637 Michael Lane. And I just remember... Like that movie, that moment in Scarface, you know, like seeing this is not going to go well. And, you know, there's a lot that happened from from that moment and being released, you know, and I remember being released and I remember as I was being pistol slapped and a guy was biting my nose of all things. He was like biting on my nose and thought for sure I was going to lose the tip of my nose. And, um, <laughs> and I remember praying to God, you know, I always believed in God. And God never really left my life even though I was at the time in addiction. And I remember saying, God, please get me out of this. Please get me out of this and I'm going to change my life. You know, I'm going to get sober. And I had been introduced to sobriety 
pre this moment, you know, from being in a rehab before that, which I then was what's called a retread. It didn't stick around, you know, as far as the sobriety. But I had sobriety under my belt. I at one point I had that plant that seed had been planted. So in my mind, I'm just like having this conversation with God, pleading with him, get me out of the situation. Once I got out of the situation, I remember being in my buddy's Jeep. His name was Loyal, and he was actually crying, thinking for sure I was dead, you know, when I ran back to it, this Jeep to get in and drive off with him. And sadly, I immediately started rolling a joint. And I remember repleting with God, saying, I know, God, I just said I was going to get sober, but you created me, and this is who I am. I'm just a drug addict. You're having a conversation trying to negotiate. Your, totally. Yeah. I'm renegotiating with God in my mind. <laughs> you know, you created me. This is who I am. I'm just a drug addict and I'm going to die a drug addict, but I will never deal again. Okay. So you were, you were changing the terms. Of I the was deal. changing the terms on God. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and at that time, I did. I kind of conceded to I'm a drug addict. I'm just going to die a drug addict. I'm never going to have the life of those other people. You know, the white picket fence, the family, the golden retriever, the nice house. That will never be me. And my subconscious mind, winners, but I would label them as the loser dorks. Yeah. The ones that had the real life. Because they're buying into this life that's boring. Exactly. Yeah. You know, you're having so much more fun. Rationalizing my, you know, pathetic life sure. <laughs> as sure. an addict. So um, that happened. I didn't get sober, but. What also started happening is the amount of drugs I needed to take in order to get that same high, I wasn't able to get. It was like a purgatory, you know. So I was like, went into this months of just being numb, mm -hmm. where I couldn't have the fun of being high. It was just prolonging, like the don't come down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was just a, a few moments that came to my consciousness and realized, God, I am so pathetic. My life is just so bad. And the drugs weren't use, working anymore. I was having blackouts. Mm -hmm. Even my pathetic drug addict friends were looking at me as pathetic. Like, mm -hmm. you are so bad, Rob. So in the land of the blind, yes. the one-eyed yeah. man is king? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> You've written a couple books. One is called 180 Degrees, and that's the um, autobiography, correct? Yeah. And then there's this <clears throat> other book called 12 Simple Steps to Loving Life. And step four is really, to me, an apt one to touch on right now because you talk about making a uh, ma – you made a searching and fearless moral, moral inventory, inventory of yourself. Yes. How does one do that from that pathetic place? Because it's a very self-defeating uh, inner dialogue you just described. Well, I don't think it's, you're capable at that early sobriety. It's okay. something that takes place after, as in the steps, the 12, taking them in the – in order. Number, in order, yeah. you know? So yeah. you, you you build up, I guess, to that place of like, okay, now I'm ready to face who I've been and write it down as far as a long inventory, mm -hmm. you know, of people that I've harmed, things that I've done wrong, things that I want to clear up, mm -hmm. amends that I need to go out and make. Does that inventory also include um, self-acknowledgement of the good parts of yourself that you still can perceive? Uh, great question. It doesn't, but that later comes. Okay. Yeah, that the step four is really about just owning up of the faults, right? Taking a look at that bad inventory and cleaning up the records records of your past. Mm -hmm. So that's what that whole process is about, and it's a big one. It's a heavy one, you know. So from twenty three, when the sort of nadir, the bottom happened, mm -hmm. you know, what what happened after that? What are the the steps that happened after that for you? Like, how did it unfold? And well, I went to a twelve step meeting. Uh huh. You know that um, why would ha would cause that? It was being numb. I don't know. I think it was a moment of uh, of um, 
a God moment of just being someone, God, higher universe, something tapping me on the shoulder saying, look at yourself. Did somebody take you or did you go by yourself? I went by myself. Was it here or up, up in Northern California? It was here. It was at a, a meeting called 2 Plus 2 on Westwood and LeConte. There's a, a church there. And it was so interesting. I, I, I showed up and the person that when I – because remember I had been introduced to sobriety prior to like going back out and using for a while. And so I show up this meeting at 2 plus 2 on a Tuesday night and one person is standing outside this meeting, the church, smoking a cigarette. And it was my old best friend. It was the last person I had seen before I went back out and used. He was the first person I saw coming back in, which was – Rather poetic. Very, yeah. yeah, just like yeah. crazy. You know, like, yeah. oh my God, I can't believe Richard's here. Yeah, it's like. And he looked at me like, oh my God, I thought you were dead. We hugged it out, had a cigarette, talked. Now, getting to that meeting, I had, I was so nervous, I got high before I went to the meeting. So as I'm in the meeting, I'm starting to kind of, you know, wake up a little bit, be aware of where I'm at. Oh my God, I'm in a, I'm in a meeting. <laughs> You're like, what am I doing? Am I going to do this? And I just saw Richard, and Richard's like hugging it out with me and high fiving me, and like, oh my God, I'm so glad you're back. Let's go to a meeting tomorrow. And and I'm like high fiving him. Yeah, I'm in this thing. And he leaves, and I, I'm walking back to my car, and I'm like, oh my God, what am I doing? Am I getting back into this whole fellowship and AA stuff and twelve steps and da 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 da? And I'm like, I don't know if I'm ready for that, but. I think maybe I'll go tomorrow night, but since I got high earlier today, well, I might as well get high tonight. Right. You're still on the same 24-hour Yeah. I, I can't start today anyway. You're having so. yet it, more negotiations yeah. with yourself. Exactly. And, and yet it seems like something is carrying you forward into sobriety. Oh, Something's carrying you. Some some force beyond yourself is carrying and you. That's why I've, you know, I, I am – I'm not a religious person. But I'm a very God-oriented person. You seem and I very spiritual to me. And I definitely believe it was God leading me, Yeah, you know, for sure. There's no question in my mind. Yeah, yeah. So you get stoned after you leave the meeting, but, but you went back the next day. Well, no, I did more than get stoned. I called my buddy Mark and said, um, hey, do you have any buds and, you know, want to come over? And as I'm driving over there, I'm thinking, I, I know he has blow, but if he does – I'm not going to use it. You know, I'm just going to smoke a couple bong loads, smoke a joint with them. You know, go home and sleep it off, and go to an AA meeting and and start this. You know, this sobriety thing tomorrow. <laughs> and um, I walked into his place, and you know, he had literally a kilo cracked open on the coffee table, and let the games begin. You know, I just you know got you know high with him on blow, and um, I just remember the next day laying on his couch and thinking to myself, I cannot control myself. You know, I can't control this addict in me. Even when I promised myself coming over here, I wasn't going to do blow. Here I am. You know, I did blow the entire night. And I remember having this like dialogue in my head about like getting him up. If I get up off this couch and I remember sweating profusely, it was in the valley. I was just like gross, like on this leather couch and it's three o'clock in the afternoon now. I'm just kind of waking up and I'm thinking if I can get myself out of Mark's apartment, he's dead asleep. He's not going to wake up. And if I lock the door behind me, I know I don't have any headgear at home. I have nothing. I don't even have like a, a roach of a joint in a in, you know, a corner of a drawer. There is nothing left. Like, wow, maybe I can get a day sober. Maybe this could be my first day. And I remember laying on the couch for like an hour or two, maybe three, contemplating this whole thing. Like, am I going to get up off this couch? Am I going to lock the door behind me? Or am I going to wait around for Mark to get up so he can get high again? And I remember getting up, walking to the door, and I remember slowly, with a lot of contemplation, closing the door behind me and locking it. And I remember it was a big thump 
in my heart, in my chest, my stomach when I closed the door and I checked to see if I actually locked it because I wanted to let myself back in. And I was just like really emotional, like, oh my God, I think I might try to get sober today. And that was a Wednesday and I went to a meeting on uh, La Cienega at the park there and um, – yeah, I mean, it's a long story. I don't want to wow. take up all of our time, no, but it's that really, was day one. It's really incredible, too, how you tell this story because it, it goes deep into that sort of division within the individual, half of which or maybe more than half of which really wants to get stoned and keep seeking those scraps of pleasure that Eckhart Tolle talks about mm-hmm. and turns instead towards the potential of themselves in their most elemental form, just themselves Mm -hmm. with God figuring out the future. Those meetings, this is more sort of on the ground level, those meetings happen everywhere all the time. Thousands a day. I went to, uh, when I used to take uh, vacations to various places, and you'd look on the boards where, you know, what the activities were, Mm -hmm. and they always had Friends of Bill. Friends of Bill, yeah. And I thought to myself, why are there Friends of Bill everywhere? (laughs) You know, like every, every, literally every hotel I would go to or every, like, convention, Friends of Bill. And I didn't know. Now I know, but I didn't know then what Friends of Bill were. But what an unbelievable thing that you did that day. And And that was it, right? That That you turned and you went to that meeting. Have you been sober since then? I have. Yeah. That's unbelievable. And yeah. that was March 11th, what year? Yeah, that actually was June 11th. Okay. And I've been sober since, although I erased eight months, which is a whole other story. You don't need to get into yeah. it if you don't want I to. Took a, well, I took a Valium one night. Okay. My mom gave to me, you know, because I was stressed out. I had a test the next day. I couldn't get to sleep. And I woke up that next day, like, proud of myself. I've got eight months sober, you know, like I was like so excited. And then I'm like, oh, wait a second. Oh, my God. We, I took a Valium last night. Like, does that erase my time? Uh So there's a a long story there. It took me three months to finally realize, you know what? I can't consider myself totally clean. Uh So it was a big deal because I had never experienced having one year sober. And I was so excited to get that one year of sobriety that two weeks before my one year cake, I erased that time Mm -hmm. and started and said I had three and a half months, which was on March 11th. I admire your rigor. I think that's... That was a hard decision yeah. to make. I, I want to acknowledge it, time. though, because it's you have to have that kind of rigor to really step into the truth. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I, so I felt very yeah. mentally clean. Yeah. You well, know, when I took that one year. What are you doing for a living at this point? Um, at that time, I was a student at SMC mm-hmm. and be, uh, between SMC and Cuesta College up in San Luis Obispo. So you have such a natural uh, openness about you, which I'm going to guess is sort of what led you into this career that you have. Because that, you weren't doing real estate when no. you were that age. Did, was there a career prior to real estate? No. No? So you were in your Derelict, early, yeah. Derelict. <laughs> yeah, I, I was listened, mastering in it. I, I listened to the story that you're telling me, which is so overwhelmingly just – I want to cry on almost every other word that you're saying. And I watch today these kids. Like um, One of the things I do in my spare time is I work with a guy named Justin Baldoni who runs an organization called Wayfarer. And we uh, collect and distribute clothes, supplies, and uh, medical care for homeless people in downtown. The homeless situation in America has reached epic proportions, as I'm sure you know. Uh, Go down there on a regular basis, and we do our work down there, and I'm appalled to see how many young, beautiful, 
healthy people are sitting on the side of the road, clearly stoned. Well, there are, and they're all addicted to oxycotton yeah. or yeah. some version of this. It's pharmaceutical companies, and mm-hmm. the, the it's the unbelievable. Bloods on their hands. It's bad. You didn't. You were not an oxycotton addict. No, one of my uncles uh, OD'd on oxy and um, died. Yeah, died. I miss him immensely. Was he your father's relative or your mother's relative? My mom's. Your mom's relative. Yeah. Every family's it's so touched appalling by this. to me that mm-hmm. they that these drugs go on and that they're they're I don't want to say it's casual, but they're so easy to get. And it's I scary. Feel, well, there's no alternative. I had a child who had his wisdom teeth pulled, and then my other son had an uh, emergency appendectomy, and both of them were prescribed oxycontin. Mm-hmm. Okay, here, let's I, let's give a ten year old some oxycontin. Yeah. Right. So so what I did with them was I said you can have one day of taking it, and then we put it in the blender. And flushed it down the toilet or put it in the trash, mm-hmm, actually. Mm-hmm. We didn't flush it down the toilet. Because I was like, you're not having this. This right. is not – Too dangerous. It's too dangerous. Mm-hmm. And they, they're they conscious of that. But I think that people are so trusting of doctors and doctors think nothing. I mean they really don't have an alternative. That's also oh, the sure problem. Oh, sure they do. There are alternatives that are not addictive. You know, you may have a little bit of pain. It doesn't – Post-surgically, get- they say they don't have an alternative. Well – I had surgery. I didn't take Oxycontin after my uh, four C-sections and had various forms of, you know, extra strength Tylenol. Did you take Percocet? No. They didn't didn't prescribe any. You're a warrior. I am a warrior. (laughs) No no Tylenol. Tylenol. I mean, I had an allergic reaction to morphine, which probably was the reason that I was fearful. But you just get through it. You know, you have a couple of miserable days. Okay. That's true. You know, you, you get through it. Everybody, your body's meant to heal, but when you see these kids in this this particular form of drugs, it's is really scary, unbelievably addictive. Yeah. So it's terrifying to see. Yeah. Okay, so let's go back to this. So now you've gotten yourself sober. Yeah. And at the beginning of sobriety, if I understand this correctly, there's a lot of day counting. That, <laughs> minutes. You know, yeah. So you got through this five minutes, and then this hour, and then mm-hmm. this day, and then so forth. What point in time does the day counting, if it does, stop? For me, it was like around five-ish years in the five-ish year range. Now I was, you were in your late twenties. Yeah, I was. I remember vividly. Actually, I was in. I was surfing. I was uh, staying on an island uh, called Tavrua in Fiji. And after a surf sesh, you know, there was a bunch of Aussies there, and they're getting hammered, drunk at the bar, and. And I was sitting with them for the longest time and then I went back to my bray to go to sleep. And I remember thinking as I'm walking back going, wow, what a trip. I didn't even have an urge to drink with those guys. It doesn't even – like I'm like, wow, does that mean I'm recovered? Like the urge had vanished. It was gone Wow. at around five-ish years. So drugs and alcohol are in the same category for you? Yes. Sobriety includes both? Everything. So five years later, you said, I'm good now. No, it wasn't that I'm well, good not now. Good, it was that you it was the, you, you the, had a mile pri- Yeah, because prior to like when I said like counting the minutes, like there was times literally I would – I mean I remember once I was waiting tables and I was like nine months sober and I remember having such an urge to use. I don't know why. It just like hit me like a freight train and I went to the bathroom at the restaurant and I got on my knees – more than once and just beg God, please take the urge away. Please take – crying, please take this urge away. I want to stay sober. You know, I left the bathroom at that time, pay phones, went to a pay phone. I remember calling this guy Keith and just talking. He's your coach? He was your coach? Uh, sponsor. Sponsor, sorry. Uh-huh. It's okay. I didn't know what yeah. the word was. Yeah, yeah. Actually, he wasn't. Um, he was just some – you know, the fellowship. Mm-hmm. By the way, just – 
disclaimer, I am not a spokesperson for any 12-step group. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You know, of press, radio, and film just happens to be, you know, my life of being part of this fellowship. So it's just another person in the fellowship. And yeah. that's what's wonderful about 12-step groups. Did people call you? People have sponsored many and um, people have helped me. And wow. that's part of the 12th step yeah. is giving back. And yeah. that's why when I was asked to be here, it was really kind of like no questions asked. Yes. Friends of Bill? Yeah, I'll be there to help. So what are some of the – like Friends of Bill is sort of an insider uh, knowledge about about a place to go when you're on a cruise ship or in a nice yes. hotel. What are some of the others that are sort of the signals to the people in the know about you know, here's here's a place. I notice that, you know, in my neighborhood, a couple churches on Saturday evening, you'll see people standing outside smoking cigarettes, adults. Right. How does how I somebody- think recovery now? I mean, maybe it just my impression because I'm so involved. Yeah. But is so now recognized and open and not shunned upon as, you know, remember – 12 Steps and the AA movement started in 1935 in Akron, Ohio. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a different time then, you know, and it was also started by a stockbroker and a, and a doctor, you know, mm-hmm. white collar. So it was like, you know, the, to them, it, they were like embarrassed and the anonymity around it was so important. And it still is to the core of the principles of, of the groups, you know, and that's why I'm trying to like walk a thin line here, talk about, you know, my recovery, but yet. Again, disclaimer, I'm not a spokesperson for, yeah, right. a, for yeah. any meetings, et cetera, or the fellowship. Um, I think now it's like, you know, in this time and era, it's so – everyone knows about recovery. Yeah, yeah everybody you know, says it's yeah, not, I'm sober. It's no. not shamed upon, mm-hmm. at least my opinion. Right. It's not. But sometimes people are very alone. Yeah, and that's a sad part, you know, and that's where, you know, you, you call directory, a uh-huh. Alcoholics Anonymous, go online, find out where meetings are, or uh-huh. better yet, you know someone in recovery. You know, and that's where us that have been sober for a while will always reach our hand out to help someone that needs to get sober. Yeah, there's no flaking Never. on that conversation. So Never. You can flake on a dinner date with anybody, but if you hand if you put your hand out and say help me everything stops. Okay. Help that person. Okay. Now you're sober, you're living a life. Now let's go to the next part. Yes. So <laughs> you decide tell me at what point in time you made the decision about your career path. I was visiting from San Luis Obispo uh, down here in L.A., staying with my mom. What, you were in your late 20s? No, I was in my early 20s. I had just gotten sober. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. Just prior to getting sober, I remember meeting someone and their dad was in real estate. And then the next person I met, their dad was in real estate. And I was looking at the homes that they were living in. And I was like, wow. You did the math. Like, yeah, one. there's something about this real estate thing. I want one of those houses. <laughs> exactly. I want one that. of those. <laughs> so it was kind of simultaneously happening as I was getting sober in the back of my mind. I was thinking about this real estate thing. Someday, maybe, maybe that could be me, mm-hmm. you know. But still, it was, again, this disconnect I still didn't think either A, I deserved it or I was capable of anything successful. There was just like, that's for those guys. And my, my, I would like to label them as the, the dorks, but there was a subconscious envy. Like I want, I want that successful life, you know, even though I don't think I'm ever going to be capable of having it. But God, And that, you didn't come from that. No. So it mm-hmm. wasn't as if you said, oh, I need – this is my background. I need to be in that life. You were looking at it through a window. Yeah, exactly. How did you escape the sort of inner dialogue about I'm a loser and they're dorks? How did you? That's a great question. Get yeah, out of that it. was a that was years of a process. 
and well into my sobriety as I – like all of a sudden, I started getting really good at what I do, a real estate agent, and success started happening You know, around like that five or six-year period. I had one year financially that was just like a breakthrough year. I mean it just blew me away and I was so scared and it was like, what is that? What is the fear about? You know, The fear was like, I don't deserve this or I'm going to fail next year and everyone's going to laugh at me. Like probably, oh, I bet he thought he was a big shot. Like he had one good year, you know, and like all of this self-imposed like ridicule and, you know, pressure in in my head, Mm -hmm. you know, and then reading good books changed my mindset. For example? Well, you mentioned Eckhart Tolle. I mean, there's Wayne Dyer. Yeah. I read every book of Wayne's. It's just like, you know, Deepox. I mean, you just go on and on. Neil Donald Walsh, you know, the the trilogy of conversations with God were books that changed my life. You know, I started realizing, wait a second. No, I deserve this. Like, I'm a good person. I'm putting good out into the world. This is my path. I'm helping people. I'm not that derelict anymore. I'm not that taker. I'm not that selfish drug addict doing what I had to do to get, you know, to keep high. I'm now actually helping others. Why wouldn't success come? This is what's supposed to happen, right? Mm -hmm. So there was like a lot of inner dialogue around that and accepting I'm, you know, life is supposed to be good. Yeah. So when along the path did you, you're married. Mm-hmm. You've been married for at least 22 years because you no, have a 21-year-old that's son. A, you know, that's a whole other story. <laughs> that's a whole other story. And, and I'm uncomfortable talking about it for some reason, but I've been married three times. Wow. My, my first marriage, which by the way, I'm still very good friends with my first ex, Jill, um, who I had Skylar with. Um, she He's and the I, 21-year-old. Yes. You know, she and I and I – you know, she's got a great boyfriend. We've gone out, the four of us, with my wife Tara and her boyfriend Chris. And, you know, we're there for Skylar. So that's a great relationship. And I was with her for eight years. My second wife, I do not have a good relationship with. She's in and out of recovery. Mm-hmm. You know, she sadly is um, recently suicide attempts and heroin overdoses and poor thing yeah it is it is poor thing you know then there's you know i i've done my best to try and i was with her for eight years as well Mm -hmm. and we had two children and that relationship just didn't work and there was a lot of depression on her end Mm -hmm. and now you're married and now married and we're seven years together and uh yeah she's great and she's amazing we get past the mysterious eight I yes, we Tar and I talk about that. <laughs> we have to pass that all threshold. things come in eights. No. Yes, yes. We've we've joked about it and laughed about it, but with That's the seriousness of looking at each That's other. That's a good sign. Yeah. I happen to be married for forty two years, but I'm telling you right now, there are so many times along the way that I think I don't want to be married, you know, I'm because I I also got married when I was really young. But marriage is it's it, it's a job. <laughs> you know, yeah. you have to really keep your head in it's it. It's the the riddle of romance. It is unbelievable. You know, <laughs> and I you know, I think I've done well in a lot of areas in my life and I look at this area of romance and trust me, I've I'm all about self-reflection, self-analysis. You know, I've even said – And how. <laughs> yeah, and I've met with my friends. I'm like, hey, man, point out my blind spots. Yeah. Like you're my good friend. Like just be straight with me. What is it about me maybe that I need to look at? And, mm-hmm. you know, there's things that I've, you know, through therapy and have looked at and went, okay, yeah, that's what I need to own up to. And- yeah. Do you have a crew of uh, friends who you gather together with and do that on a sort of a 
regular cadence of checking Actually, yeah. in with each other? Yeah. Well, besides the 12-step groups right. and the fellowship and people that I like, you know, trudge the road of happy destiny with, I also have a group that meets at my house every Wednesday evening that are not in the 12 steps. Right. And it's a meditation group. Mm-hmm. So we meditate together. We listen to you know, Abraham Hicks, you know, uh, Esther Hicks stuff. And we, you know, we talk about Abraham's teachings or law of attraction or, you know, Charles Hanel stuff, that mm-hmm. master key system, things that Rhonda Byrne, you know, talks about in The Secret. Mm-hmm. So I have a Wednesday meeting at my house with that group of people as well. And Men we're or men and women? Men and women. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. Yeah. And we support each other in our lives and it has nothing to do with recovery. It just has to do with mindset and I guess spirituality. Yeah. Look at you. You've really got a very well rounded existence now. Yeah. I want to, I want to sort true. of, I want to make, I want to state a fact too here, which is that you are ranked in the top 1% worldwide in selling high end real estate. You know, we haven't said that. You've said you're successful, but they're successful and then there's sort of um, stratospheric kind of success and sustained over time. Do you think that? some of your practices with meeting with the group to be mindful and meditate and surfing and being rigorous in your relationship has fueled that? For sure, absolutely. You know, and I think especially um, in my earlier recovery and my early years of being in real estate, that I channel that intensity, you know, that I had towards sadly the bad, my addiction, you know, I channeled it towards the good rigorous about being really my entire life involved in the fellowship, meetings, being of service, you know, recovery, helping others, others helping me, and discipline towards my work. And at, for a while, and that actually was the demise of my first relationship, um, I was a workaholic. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I worked six and a half days a week, you know, and that was to, at the complaint of my first wife, you know, just like you need to stop working so hard. And I didn't know any other speed. Right. You know, and it was like, I tried, I tried to slow down. It was just like, I mean, I went one time, I took a month off of like just dedicating to her and us. And I just wanted to be back into work. And so now that I'm older and I've been, a, you know, doing this for a while and you know, we change our priorities, change in life, yeah. you know, and I'm still very disciplined in what I do and I still love what I do. I've gone through years of like not loving what I'm doing and then I like get back into being repassionate about it. But my my focus more is about just being happy. Mm-hmm. Yes, I love a successful career, but it doesn't label me of who I am as much as I'm proud of it. I'm more about I want to have the one-on-one being paying attention to the little moments going back to like Eckhart Tolle, mm-hmm. you know, the practicing the power of now just being really conscious of my kids, my relationship, our life, and of course, security and lifestyle. I spend a lot of time myself now thinking about the power of now. I have, I don't, I didn't have alcoholism or any kind of addictive uh, thing. Although my youngest son tells me that I, I totally have and am guilty of workaholism. Mm-hmm. And he tells me that these things have parallels, um, which, you know, I don't know that I would say that I completely understand alcohol and drug addiction, but I understand workaholism. And I worked and worked and worked and worked and worked and raised four children. And now I'm very clear about the fact that there are other things that one can do with one's time mm-hmm. than work. And um, it was a sort of a break for me, like, oh, okay, well, I can do that now. You know, I've achieved my level of success, and I can do other things now. But it was a, I had to teach myself yep. not to do that. I and literally that, had to teach myself. 
that's what that book's about, the 12-step book. It's uh, 12 Steps to Loving Life or 12 Simple Steps to Loving Life. It's taking that 12 steps and applying it for everyone, for anything. Right. Yeah. It doesn't have to necessarily have to be an ailment of any kind, a handicap, an addiction. It could be anything as far as just you know, like an inventory. Mm-hmm. I mean I think well, what a great concept. What a great practice, a step for anyone in life to like take a look at their life and go, okay, do I own amends? Is there anything about myself that I'm holding on to, mm-hmm. a grudge, a resentment, a, 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 you know, a fear, and just kind of purge out and clean it up? So much of the transition that we make, because I, I also I w- had a pretty heavy-duty career, and when I moved to L.A., I kind of consciously decided to not pursue being the same person I was when I lived in New York. And I have had to learn how to be with myself and not be driving towards achievement. Mm-hmm. Um, I noticed in your book you have St. Francis of Assisi's prayer, yes, which is make me a channel of your peace. Mm-hmm. And this idea of returning to I'm, I'm enough. I just need to be as peaceful within myself in order to be of service to other people in the world. And I think that that is a huge part of the transition that you have to make. And it is very – it's difficult when you've been – uh, practicing the overdone strength of being excellent at your job, mm-hmm. you know, to go back into a place of just ex- existing on a certain level and trying to exist in a benign way to be of service in the world. Well said. Yeah. Well said. So what's I, what do you so what's, now today? Let's talk about what's next for you. Oh, that's a good question. You know, um, someone keeps on. A few people have encouraged me to write a third book. I'm not sure if that's in me. It's a very tedious process of writing <laughs> and the editing part of it. That's a great question. I, you know, right now I, I'm really happy with everything in my life that I'm not necessarily looking for anything else other than keep enjoying what I'm doing on a day-to-day basis. Do you consider yourself to be peaceful now? Very, for the most part. Probably m- more than most, but not – of I? course I go through my – you know, what referred to as the drunk monkey in the head. You know, those crazy thoughts, those, you know, oh, my God, that that fear train is going to hit me. You know, my worst case scenario is going to happen. The perfect storm, you know, which, you know, I got hit with in the um, the Great Recession. You know, financially, I was just caught in a bad place. I had a lot of things going on and, you know, the world stopped economically, you know, and I got hit with a perfect storm. And I remember being faced with, oh, my – and then, funny enough, I just wrote that book, <laughs> the 180 book talking about success, right? And that got published in 09. And then, you know, like right as all this stuff was happening to me, I'm like, oh, my God, the ridicule too. You know, here I write this book about being successful and I'm about to like financially crash. And I came at peace with it. And you were just talking about being at peace within. And that time in my life forced me to realize, A, I'm not my career. I'm not my bank account. I'm not my home address. I'm not the house. I'm not any of that stuff. And I remember being coached by a life coach at the time, writing out what would the worst case scenario look like. Just face it. You know, I remember talking to him on my first call about all the challenges I was going through and what was happening. And he started clapping. He's like, that's awesome. Oh my God, that is so great. What a breakdown you're having. This, and I'm like angry. I'm yeah. grinding my teeth on the phone. Like, what are you talking about? My life is collapsing and you're cheering this on. He's like, that's beautiful. He goes, <laughs> yeah. you know, you have to have these massive breakdowns to have breakthroughs, Rob. Yeah. I mean, Eckhart Tolle talks about something and I'm going to butcher what he said, but he talks about how spirit exists and we exist to bring spirit into this world, into this realm of existence. And I think when you've just written 
a book like 180 Degrees, telling your story in order to inspire people, and then the success that validates it starts to crumble underneath you. That spirit coming in to fuck with you and play with you. Yes. Right? The contrast. And if you can just be peaceful within yourself, which is really freaking hard, but if you can just be peaceful within yourself and guide yourself through it, your coach is totally right. Like incredible abundance can come through that. Exactly. And I did. I wrote down and my worst case scenario was that I was going to be a barista at Starbucks and there's nothing wrong with being a barista at Starbucks. And I came at total peace with it. And I was like, oh, all right, you know what? Wow. But And look at all the things I'm going to be grateful for. I've got an amazing group of friends. I've got the fellowship. I know I always have a couch somewhere of someone in the fellowship to sleep on. You know, everything is going to be okay. And I remember taking a jog with this letter that I wrote to God of my worst case scenario and I ran up to the top of Point Doom and I remember burning it and I remember just having a moment with God of saying, you know what, if this is what my path's going to be, it's not what I want, but I'm at peace with it, God. Whatever's going to happen, I know you got my back. I know it's all going to be fine. Mm -hmm. And I remember walking back to my house at the time and just being like it was very emotional, but I was at peace and it was like such a moment. And I remember two months later, I had like such a phenomenal month in business. You know, it was just like, yeah. Did you feel different about the phenomenal month after that epiphany? Yes. With such immense gratitude and also not being attached to it. It was like being so happy and so grateful, but also like, it's not everything. It, you know, it's like, okay, thank you. But, you know, it's not going to – either way, it won't change my life if yeah. I don't allow it to change my life. It's so interesting you're talking about that because people like you and I, we were on the front line during that. I'm a banker. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting there at my desk every day and we accumulated the woes and the, and the fears of the world, mm-hmm. people who were in our path. You know, my phone rang, you know – three or four times as much as it usually does during that period because people were afraid. There was real fear on the streets. Mm -hmm. And the bank, you know, the money markets were breaking the buck and the stock market was plunging and their home values were plunging and people were committing suicide. And there was just, it it was like a tidal wave of anxiety. And I remember sitting at my desk and feeling like I just absorbed it all. You know, I would take everybody's stuff and hold on to it, you know, and try to take it off of them and give them some peace and say, you know, that this really sucks, but I, I can promise you that we're going to get through this. I don't know what it's going to take to get through it, but taking it all in as you did in your business and in your personal life, it was a lot to deal with. And I believe, and I think back that for me, I didn't identify it at the time, but it was a time of trauma because I really didn't know, you know, factually that we were going to get through this. Right. And and we all had all people in, that were like us. You know, we were getting all of the anxiety that all of the people in, that were around us were feeling. And I kept saying, oh, yeah, we're going to get through this. It's going to be fine. And I look back and I think, I don't know where that came from, that resolve to say, oh, it's going to be fine, you know, because I had no way of knowing. But that time that you're talking about and that fear and that walking up to the top of the mountain was a really hard time for people like us. It was really, really difficult. And it was the only time I've ever really experienced abject fear from people. Mm-hmm. People were terrified. Their houses went down 40% in value. They had mortgages on them. They were worth less than their mortgages were. And it was just one thing after another. And the fact that you did that and that you found your way to that moment and then it turned is such a 
It's, I find it a very overwhelming experience that you went through and identified with it completely. It was hard. It was really hard. It was hard. I mean I did the, the, the quick math. All of a sudden I realized I was like – I had 70000 a month in expenses and the real estate market shut down and I had inventory of properties that I own that now are worth like 70 cents on the dollar and then quickly looking like it was going to be 60 cents, 50 cents. I was like, oh my god, I'm going to have to sell properties now to – you know just stay afloat. Oh my God, this is, how did I get caught in this situation? And I felt stupid. Like, how did I not see this coming? And tying back into my father, you know, my dad at one point, as I mentioned, at one thing, he was running a law firm. But when he died, he died with hawking stuff. He had like a little apartment. He lost everything. And in my mind, I'm like, oh my God, am I going to live out my dad's path like is this happening to me this pattern yeah you know this pattern yeah. you know and yeah. and i felt remember feeling so sad for him you know when i went up to go visit him in roseville california and just at one time remembering him as you know 6 foot 220 as far as weight you know stocky guy he was a football player you know in his college days and then i saw him and he was just like dwindled away and everything gone you know it was just thinking wow that's going this is might happen to me mm-hmm. you know it's also interesting to me that you surf What a solo, peaceful sport that is. I love it. You know, I imagine so. People who tell me, who people who I know surf find it to be very ethereal. Unquestionably, yeah. It's that, that I get such peace out of it. For sure. Yeah. Do you surf regularly? As much as I can, yeah. You do? Yeah. Like everyone in my life knows that, you know, when there's a good south swell, like my calendar has <laughs> we'll to remain you open. A point <laughs> <in>. yes. <laughs> so your assistant has like the chart up? Yeah, he's at a board meeting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. That's so cool. That's awesome. It's funny. I, I, have, I have a question for you. Before I met you and when I was researching and looking around, I would have thought you would have been a much more kind of crazily extroverted person. And you seem to be like a cross between both introverted and extroverted. Well, how would you assess yourself in that respect? Wow. That was, I think, a very accurate assessment of me. Um, it's funny. you know, Real estate forced me to, as someone said early in my career, Rob, you need to learn to press palms. You need to go out there and shake hands because I was an introvert. Okay. Oh, I, I held a wall up at a party. That was me, okay. you know, leaning up against the wall and hands in pocket, you know, head down, just kind of to myself. So it's I've, I've had to force myself to be more of a extrovert and talk mm-hmm. to people. Mm-hmm. You know, now doing this for twenty eight years is kind of the thing I've built a habit of doing it. But you know, like surfing, you know, surfing it's a solo sport. That's kind of like in, a lot of times my happy place. Yeah, it's just rolling. You recharge. Solo. Yeah, you I recharge just kind of like gather my thoughts. Let me just yeah. be with myself and. So, yeah, it's a, it's a juggling act for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's one more thing I want to talk to you about before we let you go, and that's the philanthropic work that you do. Talk a little bit about it. Well, I've been, you know, in the past, like we were talking about the homeless, mm-hmm. you know, a crisis and problem. You know, I was very active in Chrysalis, which is an organization to help the homeless. I've been involved with Betshuva, Claire, uh, different recovery, uh, Habitat for Humanity. Um, I used to, you know, sponsor my own tennis tournament at the Palisades Riviera Country Club for Chrysalis and Habitat for Humanity. I was very involved in the organized um, charity, and now I really choose to do it more kind of one on one and see the benefits of working with someone. As far as how I look at my charity work, you know, it's fantastic, and kind of almost in a way being anonymous, but just more of a one on one. Helping of people when I can. 
You're such an impressive person. I'm so glad we got to know each other today. Oh, that's sweet. Thank you. Really. Thanks for coming in. Your story is a really important story for so many people. I hope. Yeah. I mean, that's really why I wrote yeah. those books. It's like, I just hope it helps. Yeah. You know? I also want to acknowledge in the 12 Simple Steps to Loving Life, how you weave in and out of your teachers. You include quotes from your teachers, um, whether they were direct teachers or books that you read books. and were influenced by. And um, I I love that because then if a person is inspired by a quote, they might go read the book of the individual. And I think that's a, a lovely device that you built into the book. Thank you. Robert Radcliffe, thank you for coming. Thanks for having awesome. me. Thanks for listening to Say It Forward. Help us grow by subscribing to our podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or at www.sayitforwardpodcast.com. Don't forget to rate and review us on the iTunes store or like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. 